Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. I want to thank our sponsors for our Parsha class this morning, Irving and Bunny Churson, in memory of his mother, Volya Bas Shmuel, and her father, Pinchas Ben Yosef, on their Yeratites, the 5th Adar and 28th of Shvat, respectively. The Neshamas should have an Aliyah. Okay, this week we have the privilege of learning and reading Parsha's Tetzaveh. And we continue. If last week's Parsha introduced us to the concept of the Mishkan, a physical dwelling place for the Ribbon and for the Almighty. We learned and studied of the different utensils, the architecture, the engineering of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, the utensils therein. Then this week we move over and we continue to study what was the uniform of the people who conducted the service within the Mishkan. The Bolka Parsha Tetzave deals with the Big Day Kahuna, the clothing of the Kohanim, and the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, of the high priest who the service required one to be wearing that uniform. Without the uniform, it was, it was something which was incomplete. Our parsha is an exception. The Vilna Gon already points out, as did many others, that this is the only parsha in the whole Torah, that once we were first introduced to Moshe Rabbeinu, the only parsha subsequent to that introduction, in which Moshe's name does not appear. There are a number of reasons which are given why. I saw a beautiful reason this year that I'd never seen before, but I'm saving it for Shabbos. Because I may use it, I may use it for my drasha. Because it connects also to Purim. But note that Moshe's name does not appear. It's not a coincidence. Pasha's Tetzaveh is usually read in the very week of Zion Adar, the week which commemorates Moshe's birth, but also his Yerzite, also his passing. Zion Adar has been dedicated for centuries as a day to recognize and honor the members of the Hever Kadisha, those who do the holy work of Tahara, burial preparation, and so on. One of the reasons given is that the Hever Kadisha had the day off when Moshe was Nifter, the day of Moshe's passing. Hashem himself did the Tahara, Hashem himself did the Kvura. There was no audience at Moshe's funeral. There were no attendees. Moshe's funeral was him and the Ribbon Shalom. The Ever Hashem and Hashem alone. We don't know where Moshe is buried. For the fear of the reason, we might turn it into a place of worship, if we knew. So Zion Adar, the day of Moshe's passing, is always the parasha of Tetzaveh, in which Moshe's name does not appear. Like I said, many, many reasons are given. The bulk of our parasha deals with the issue of Asisa, Big Day Kodesh, Li'ar Nachicha, to make clothing. But what is the purpose of the clothing? The purpose of the clothing is not the way we wear clothing. We wear clothing or one thinks we wear clothing to protect us from the elements. Clothing were first introduced for that reason. Adam and Chava are in Gan Eden. They've eaten from the Eitz Hadas, which they weren't supposed to. And what is the very first realization? What's their very first recognition? They say, ooh. They turn to one and they say, do you feel that breeze? I feel naked. And the Kodesh Baruch Hu gives them the great fig leaf, the leather, the, they're able to, to be clothed. So we think of clothing as protecting us from the elements, to avoid cold, to avoid thorns and rashes, to avoid sunburn. But here the Torah describes Asisa Big Day Kodesh, the uniform of the Kohanim for Aaron and his family was Lechavod Ulesifaris, for honor and for glory. We've discussed this in the past. You could listen online. We're not going to go into it. For whose honor and for whose glory? For whom is the covenant Tifaris? For Hashem, for the Kohanim, for Klai Yisrael, 
all the options are offered. Again, like I said, we've studied it in the past. But I'll share with you Rabbi Salavechik from his Chumash describes. People appointed by the public, such as government officials, have always worn uniforms. The uniform indicates that the one wearing it holds an office and is endowed with authority. Even an absolute monarch wears a uniform to distinguish himself from the ordinary citizen. Leadership and distinction express themselves in distinctive garments. The dignity of man lies in his dress. Dignity, unlike any other capability, must be planted into a person. If dignity is not part of his educational process, he will never possess it. Dignity does not come on its own. In a king or ruler, personal capabilities or lack of them often go unnoticed. However, lack of dignity is noticed, and a rule that exhibits it is punished by the people. Clothing is an expression not of the intellect, but of the dignity of man. And uniforms imply that those donning them are, spe- are specially selected by the people and are given certain privileges that others do not receive. There's a special aspect of humility that's indispensable to positions of power. One's authority comes not from within, but from without. God wanted the Kohen Gadol to realize he was undeserving of his position. When he wore his uniform, the Kohen Gadol recognized that he filled his role not due to his own merits, which were insufficient for anyone to assume such a high office. Same was true of the king. Without donning the royal garments, he would not have the authority to act as a king. So here the Rav is communicating a number of messages simultaneously. One of them is about dignity. That clothing and the idea of donning a uniform reflects with whom we identify, the community. What uniform are we wearing? Do clothing make the man? And make no mistake, though some are cynical, let's say, of the yeshivish world. Everyone wears the same white shirt, black pants, black hat. That's a uniform. But do you think the non-yeshivish world are not wearing uniforms? Do you think when teenagers... Do you think every man on Shabbos who's now wearing tight pants as part of his suit and is terribly uncomfortable because that's what the fashion demands? Or the latest uniform, men who wear pants that don't meet their shoes and they wear shoes without socks. Men wearing fancy business suits with shoes with no socks and short pants. They look ridiculous. They'll look ridiculous when they look back in pictures in a few years from now. The glasses that we're wearing, the outfits that I'm not, I can't comment on the women's. I mean, I could. I have a lot of. I live in a. I live in a girls' dormitory with a lot of women. But the point is that whatever community we're part of, you have piercings and tattoos. You have this haircut, no haircut. You grow your beard long, or you were bullied into trimming it. Whatever the case may be, you're part of a community. You're identifying with a uniform. We can be naive and suggest it's just my individuality and why are you judging me by externality and by the superficial? But if we're honest, we recognize and realize that what we wear says a lot about us. And what it says most about us says the Rav is our sense of dignity. Do we carry ourselves with dignity? Do we carry ourselves with class? Do we carry ourselves with a sense of modesty? Clothing preserve a sense of our dignity. But also the fact that clothing and a uniform give us that identification externally means that often we are unworthy internally, but rather the title that we have is bestowed upon us from the outside. That's not a uniform, that's not something that we should take, that we should take lightly. Torah begins to then delineate the different big day kahuna. The different big day kahuna. What are these different garments? What are these different vestments? We have the the Choshen Eifod Me'il Ketonas Tashbet Mitnefes Avnet Yasu Bigdei Kodesh La'aron Achicha When we use clothing to preserve dignity, to protect modesty, to communicate that we are much more than our body, but we are a soul, then the clothing is serving as L'chavod Al-Sifaris. The clothing is serving us to have honor and to have dignity, to have glory. So we have the Eifod, which is 
again, we're not going to take time now because I want to get to our section. But the different sec- the different uh, big day kahuna that the uh, regular Kohen wears, the Kohen Gadol wears, the um, the Choshen, which was engraved with the with the uh, stones, the Choshen, the breastplate, which was on the ephod that had the stones representing all of the different Shvatim. And here I'll call your attention just to give you one example within our overview of the parsha. The uh, the Choshen is described. Chapter 28, verse 12, the top of page 468. Aaron is told, you place both stones on the shoulder straps of the aphod, the stones for the children of Israel. He carries their names before Hashem on both his shoulders as a remembrance. It doesn't say Vinasan place their names. I would have thought it should say place their names. Engraved on stones on the breastplate, I would think it should say place. But it doesn't say place. It says carry. Why does it say carry? So here Rabbi Salavitchik writes, Two of the items the Kongoda wore are emphasized, the tzitz and the choshen. The tzitz appeased for sins regarding impurity. The tzitz was entirely kodesh lashem. In fact, it said on the tzitz, which was the sort of headband that the Kohen wore, it said, Kodesh Lashem. It said, Holy, the Kohen Gadol wore, Holy for Hashem. The Gemara has a debate. Did it say it on one line or two lines? Kodesh Lashem on one line, or Kodesh, and Lashem on two lines. It's an amazing Gemara, because I don't remember who the, the uh, great rabbis are, but one says to the other, Trust me, I'm telling you the way it says it, and I'm right. He says, well, how do you know? Why are you so confident you're right? He says, because I was in Rome, and I saw the tzitz. And I'm telling you what I saw there, which is one of the early sources that testify to after the Khurban, the fact that our Kalim, our utensils of the Beis HaMikdash, likely until this very day, still sits somewhere in the Vatican. So the tzitz said, Kodesh Lashem, holy for Hashem, it was placed on Aaron's forehead, opposite intelligence, opposite knowledge. The tzitz would rule on questions of what was permitted, what was forbidden, what was pure, what was impure, liability. Tzitz would rule on the halachas of the aguna, marriage, divorce, mixtures of unkosher items, stains, and nida. The tzitz was opposite the brain. So the shilas, the complicated questions that required knowledge, analysis, halachic conclusions, were arrived at with the use of, in the merit of, the tzitz. The choshen was not opposite the intellect, the brain, but sat where? The choshen was worn opposite the heart, the center of love and affection for the Jewish people. All the names of the tribes were etched on the Torah gives it the appellation, the Choshen Mishpat. The Choshen was concerned about completely different questions. Should we enter the land or not? Should we conquer this land and fight the enemy or not? Should I call for public gatherings to protest against Israel's dishonor or not? How should I relate to a specific current event? How should a Jew act in the public sphere? How should I plan my actions, my words, my declarations, my speech? These questions, which relate to the essence of Knesset Yisrael, were decided through the Choshen, which was where? On Aaron's heart a heart which reflected the suffering of his nation. This was a general rule over the thousands of years of exile and wandering. The very same Kohen who wore the holy tzitz, who ruled on the matters of Jewish law, was also the one to inquire of the Urim the Tumim of the Choshen. The very same Kohen 
who would halachically rule regarding all the difficult problems of should I enter the land or not, of war and peace, of hope and despair, of our relationship to the nations of the world and the government, the same Kohen, whose mind was saturated with the holiness of the Torah, of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Eliezer, of Abai and Rava, of the Ram and the Raiva, the Beis Yosef and the Ramah, who through the Holy Spirit see the solution to all current political questions, all that transpires in the world, all the demands that are on the agenda. The same Kohen who wore the holy tzitz, the master of Halacha and Agada would stand before kings, would fall in supplication before leaders of the world, sometimes bestowing blessings and sometimes acting stubbornly. He who was pure of mind, overflowing with the knowledge of the Torah, also had the heart that beat in tandem with the people. He who ruled in questions of Yerodea, also ruled upon difficult and complicated questions regarding Orachayim, how to rule on political matters. There can be no love of Israel today, there can be no love of Israel by a leadership that does not reflect the sanctity of Israel. There is no Choshen without the Tzitz. It's a very, very interesting insight of the Rav, very precious insight to today, where we have a world where people say, you know, the rabbis with the Tzitz, the brilliant encyclopedic minds who deal with the issue of complicated questions and kashras and end-of-life issues and Hilchah Shabbos and Hilchah Nida and new technology and new innovation, they should stick to the Basim Medrash. They should stick to the Svarim. They should stick to the arena of but I, even though I'm barely literate on those matters of the brain, of the intellect, I have the heart to tell you whether the Jewish people should be engaged in this innovation, that innovation, what we should be doing, what we should not be doing. And Rabbi Salavitchik very, very vociferously communicates here the notion that they're inseparable. It's the same calling who wore the tzitz, who wore the choshen. It's the same one who combines the intellect, the brain, and the emotion of the heart. You have to care about the truth, the authenticity, the Mesorah of Torah, but you also have to care about the Jewish people. This is really a continuation of the theme that we mentioned last week, when Rabbi Soloveitchik talks about Yehud and Goral, fate and destiny, bris Sinai and bris Avos. Right? Last week we talked about the notion, I think it was last week, two weeks ago, last week, but we talked about the notion that there's bris Avos, as the offspring, the progeny of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, we are bound as a people, by peoplehood, by a shared history, and by a shared destiny. And if our lives and lifestyles may look different, our understanding of halacha, either the legitimate differences within halacha, of the, of the elu ve'elu, or the debate about halacha, which is not a legitimate debate between those who are part of the Mesorah and those who've distorted it. But we're still bound by bris of us. We're part of a people, we're part of a nation, we're part of a narrative, we're part of a story. And also, in parallel, we have bris Sinai, the idea that we are bound by halacha, by a system, by expectations, and by a lifestyle. So, the two run in parallel, they intersect, but bris of us and bris Sinai. One might feel bris of us is the heart, and bris Sinai, halacha, is the head. But you know, they're both adjudicated, and the authority to determine both come from the people steeped in Torah. You can't be almost illiterate in halacha, in Torah, in shas, and think that you are in a position of authority to address enormous questions of the day that deal with the entire Jewish people. Regarding the land of Israel, regarding policies for the Jewish people. I gave a talk several weeks ago as part of our Moments That Mattered series, on the Soviet Jewry movement. And we reviewed this very emotional debate. Rabbi Taitz, Lubavitcher Rebbe, and others who said, don't demonstrate publicly. 
You're going to alienate the Soviets. They're going to take it out on our brothers and sisters behind the Iron Curtain. These demonstrations are backfiring. These demonstrations are self-destructive. And a whole other group who said, demonstrations are what are calling attention. Demonstrations, what's moving the needle. Demonstrations leading the leaders of this country, the President of the United States, to put Soviet Jewry on the agenda with the Soviet counterparts. We reviewed that whole story. And what's fascinating is that fast forward now, all these decades later, both sides continue to debate and each one takes credit that their methodology is what ultimately led to the fall of the Iron Curtain. Those who led the demonstration to the demonstrations made the difference. And those, particularly followers of the Rebbe, say it was the quiet, behind-the-scenes diplomacy which made the difference. But who should determine that question? And I provided some halachic literature about that question of demonstrations. Who should determine the answer to that question? Should it be somebody who's not literate in Shasuposkin? Somebody who can't wear the tzitz, only can wear the hoshen? That's what the Rav is saying here. That when it comes to the issues of the day that affect Klai Yisrael, though even the bris avos, not the bris sinai, but it's only the one who is the authority on bris sinai who simultaneously is the authority on bris avos. The two are inextricably linked and they can't be disconnected. You can't be an authority on one without the other. You can't wear the choshen without also wearing the tzitz. But there's very beautiful imagery here about how the Kohen Gadol wore as I pointed out, it doesn't say he placed the names, it says he carried the names of the Jewish people. The Jewish people, the Yavar Benal says, the Jewish people's names have to be on the heart. The Torah says that he would wear the Jewish people's names when he entered the Kodesh HaKadoshim, but he didn't, he didn't wear this garment on his way in. So the Sfas explains so beautifully. It doesn't mean he was wearing the Chosha and the stones when he entered. It meant he was wearing the thought of the people on his heart. We can't see ourselves as disconnected from the storyline of the Jewish people. Oh, that's their problem in Parkland. That's their problem in that Moshav in Eretz Yisrael. That's their problem, the Jews who are struggling or suffering there in South America or wherever else. To be a Jew is to carry the names of the Jewish people on our heart. It's to carry the story of the Jewish people on our heart. That's what it means to be a leader, but it's also what it means to be a member of, of the Jewish people. We have the aphod the Tzitzav Tahor, the Kliyakar, by the way, throughout, based on Gemara's, explains the magnificent symbolism within each of these garments. What they atone for, what they correspond with, what the symbolism is. These parshas, Truma, Tzitzav, Vayakab, they seem so inaccessible to us. Whether it's the utensils, whether it's the Karbanos, all safer Vayikra, whether it's these garments, we can't relate to them, we don't identify with them, we don't have them. But I highly recommend studying the Kliyakar, who does a magnificent job of showing the symbolism of each of these garments, utensils, the Mishkan, the Karbanos, and the symbolism is as relevant today in some ways more than, than ever. The end of the, then we have the inauguration ritual when Moshe Rabbeinu, who was not going to serve as the Kohen Gadol, Moshe Rabbeinu, why is that? part of the answer. I'm not telling you that I'm saving for Shabbos. But Moshe Rabbeinu does not have the blessing of serving as the Kohen Gadol. But for seven days he does a dry run of the Mishkan. And he teaches. He tutors. It's almost rubbing salt in his wounds. You don't get to be the Kohen Gadol. But you are going to act as if you are. You're going to pretend for seven days to teach your brother who will serve that position of prominence 
and pass it on to his offspring. In fact, I think recently in the Daf, we just had the question, what did Moshe Rabbeinu wear when he was serving those seven days? On the one hand, he can't wear his ordinary clothing. He is doing this dry run, a rehearsal of the Mishkan. On the other hand, he's not a Kohen. How can he wear the big day kahuna, the Kohen Gadol? The Gemara gives an answer, special white clothing that he wore, and so on. So we have the, the dry run. And then the end of the parsha, we have the Karban Tamid, the Tamid offering that was offered every morning and every evening without fail. It's one of the reasons we mourn on Shabbos of the Tamas. 17th of Tamas is when that offering ceased. It's when we were prevented from bringing the daily offering. Imagine never missing. And then the shul has to close down. You can't have shachar or mincha that day. You're prevented. Our enemies, our oppressors, don't allow you. That's an incredible source of grief and of pain. The Tamid was offered daily. Didn't matter, rain, sleet, snow. Weekday Shabbos, Yantif. Carbon Tamid was offered on a regular basis. There's a tremendous lesson in the Carbon Tamid. The idea of consistency. The idea of Tamid. In fact, many are familiar with the Medrash that's quoted by the introduction to the Ein Yaakov, which no one's been able to actually find the Medrash, that talks about the rabbinic gathering where they debated what is the motto of the Jewish people. And one opinion was it was Shema Yisrael, which we can understand, the unity of Hashem's existence. That is a summary of our theology. Another was, no, Kamocha. Interpersonally, that's the whole Torah. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the third position was, our Pasuk. Two sheep, one brought in the morning and one in the afternoon. Shema v'yahavta, those are very compelling cases. This Pasuk should be the motto, the bumper sticker of the Jewish people, are you kidding me? And the answer is yes, to be a Jew is to never be on vacation. We're never on hiatus. You never take a break. A relationship with the Yibona Shalom is like a marriage. You don't say I'm married when we're both home, but when I'm on my business trip, I'm single. I'm married when I'm on the ground, when I'm in the air. I'm married when, we're, when I'm at work. Marriage is an identity. It's part of your core, who you are. It's inseparable. You're never on hiatus. You never take a vacation. It's what it means to be a Jew in a relationship with the Rebona Shalom, fulfilling our mission and purpose for why we are here. There is no break. There is no vacation. It's part of what motivated Mayor Shapiro, the Lublina Rav, and the founder of the Dafyomi, the daily learning, the daily grind to never miss a day, to build that consistency. When one arrives at the end of seven and a half years, it makes a seem a shas. The entire seam is broken if you miss one day. One day, you say, are you kidding? Seven and a half years, I missed one day and I can't participate? The answer is yes. It's a grueling marathon. It is a spiritual Ironman competition to be able to complete. This is the motto of what it means to be a Jew, is a kevesechad, day in and day out. You could go on vacation, but you still have to daven and make a bracha and keep Shabbos, and you don't ever go on vacation from that status, from that relationship with Hashem. And lastly, in the section that we're going to study together this morning, is the very end of Parshish Tetzavah, we have the obligation to build the Mizbeach HaKetores, the gold Mizbeach in which the incense was offered, and uh, our own special service with it that would happen once a year on Yom Kippur. So let's get delve right into that on page 482 in the article Stone Chumash. Perak Lamed. Perak Lamed. Pasuk Aleph. Okay. 
Says the Torah. Make an altar that you're going to bring incense up and smoke. What is the altar made out of? Acacia wood. Make it out of acacia wood. Which is kind of a funny material to make something you're going to light a fire on. That doesn't sound so prudent. So we'll see the Mephoshim in a moment. It was covered with gold and it was a very small fire. That was all that was necessary to burn the incense. And the wood was never really at risk. I'd say shitim, acacia wood. I mentioned on Shabbos, the Medrash says in Shmos Rabbah, I'd say shitim ain't osa pri. That this wood comes from a tree that does not produce fruit. And I saw such a beautiful pshat. That what the Torah is telling us, by using wood, dafka from a non-fruit tree, a tree that doesn't produce fruit, is that the walls of the Mishkan, the utensils themselves, they have no continuity. They're going to rot, they're going to decay, they're going to disappear. The continuity of the Mishkan is not from the furniture, and it's not from the walls, it's from the people. That v'shachati b'socham, that when Hashem dwells within us, it's not the Mishkan, the walls, it's not the furniture, the furnishings, that create a sense of continuity and the presence of Hashem. It's the v'shachanti b'socham, it's the people. So the walls, the furniture that are made from atzei shitim, they have no future, they have no fruit. But we, we have to feel Hashem's presence and when we create that atmosphere of enthusiasm, when we live a life, we spoke about last week, that I want to shift to the Hashem kol yimei chayai. I want to sit in Hashem's house all day, how? Cold, because I bring Hashem into every aspect of my life. At gym, at work, at home, in the shul, everywhere. That when I bring Hashem down, then I have peros. Then I will produce offspring and fruit who will follow in those footsteps. So this Mizbeach HaKtoros was also made from Akeshua. Its length was an ama, its width was an ama, about a foot and a half. It was square. Its height was two ama. And from its height, there were four protrusions in the corners that looked like horns that came out. And you cover it with gold. The top of it, the walls, the thorns, all of it. And there's a golden molding, a golden crown that goes all around. You make two gold rings under the crown, on the two corners, on the sides, so that you put the poles through them. You drive the staves, the poles through the rings, so it's transportable, it can be carried throughout the desert. The poles also are made from acacia wood. They too are layered, they too are covered with gold. Where does this go? It goes in front of the curtain that's covering the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the curtain that's covering the Ark. In front of the cover on top of the Aron, where I will have my meetings with you. We also have in our parsha Venoadati. What other word is similar? Moed. The root of the word Moed Eva Eid, no aditi, means a meeting place, a rendezvous point. A moed, a yantif, is a rendezvous point. All throughout the year we're coasting, we're being carried by momentum, inertia, 
And then come the holidays, the Shalash Regalim is to break our sense of Hergel. The Shalash Regalim come, the three holidays come, and they disturb, they interrupt our momentum, the habit, the pattern we formed, and they become a Moed. They're a rendezvous point to return to a feeling of intimacy, of connection, of affection with Hashem. So he describes where does the Mizbeach HaKetoros go? It's placed outside the Parochas, opposite the Aron, where I come to meet with you. The Iktir Al-Avaron Ketoros Samim Baboker Baboker Beitivos Neiros Yaktirena and Aron offers spices on it, the Ketoros, the incense, that go up and smoke when? Every morning when he ignites when he lights the flame of the menorah. And again in the afternoon, it goes up in smoke. It's a continual incense before Hashem for your generations. Don't you dare bring any other sacrifice on it. Remember, we have two mizbachos, we have two altars. There's the copper altar, which is out in the courtyard, which is brought the korbanos, the sacrifices are brought on. And this is the smaller golden altar designated exclusively for bringing incense. Aaron receives atonement using the horns once a year. How? When he sprinkles the blood of the chatas on Yom Kippur, on the corners, Kodesh Kadoshim Hul Hashem, he receives atonement from it. Okay, that's the entire section. We're now going to go back and analyze. But our analysis begins with what should be to you the obvious question. And what should be the obvious question here? What's the obvious question? Apparently not so obvious question. <laughs> What's the obvious question? Very good. What in the world is this doing here? Lovely section. Why is this here? Parshish Truma delineated the Shulchan, the Mizbeach, the Menorah, the Mishkan. This Parsha is all about the Big Day Kahuna, the clothing, the Kohen Hedjit, the Kohen Gadol. And then we strip here in the, at the end of the Parsha, we sneak in. Oh yeah, there was one more utensil. As if we forgot to include it in the list in Truma. And we hope you don't notice that we snuck it in at the end of Parsha's Tetzadah. What is this doing here? Why is it here? Logically, it much more belongs in Parsha's Truma. Why is it at the end of Parsha's Tetzave? And why are we told its placement is opposite the Aram? You know that the Mizbeach and the Menorah, the Shulchan and the Menorah rather, were much closer to the Aram than this Mizbeach HaKetores. In terms of proximity, they were closer. So why is this Dafka identified as being opposite? True, the, the Menorah was on the south and the Shulchan was on the north. That's why Harutza Lahachim Yadrim. If you want to become wise, you would turn to the south. That's where the menorah was. If you wanted to Harutza Lahashir, if you want to become rich, then Yatspin, you turn to the north. The Shulchan that represents sustenance. The name of our Torah journal, volume two, will be coming out before Pesach, please God. It's called Yadrim, based on that expression. Harutza Lahachim Yadrim. If you want to become smart, look to the south, South Florida. If you looked at, you get it? That's, the, that's why we called it Yadrim. In the introduction to the first volume, I wrote an introduction about that expression. Based on the menorah, based on the shulchan, 
the Aruch says it has nothing to do with the Mishkan, it has to do with the fact that in Eretz Yisrael, the great scholars always lived in the south of Eretz Yisrael, Yadrim, to the south of Eretz Yisrael, geographically, most understand it to mean in the Mishkan, Yadrim, look to the menorah, the menorah represents the light of Torah. So, true, one was in the south, one was in the north, but in terms of distance, proximity, they were closer to the Aram. So yes, the Mizbech HaKetoros is opposite, but it's opposite but further back. So why is it specifically described here as opposite the Aron HaEidos, V'nu'ada Iva Eid L'chashama? This is the place of the rendezvous point. This is the place that's told to us as a Kodesh Kadoshim. This is not the Holy of Holies. It's outside the parochas. And yet it's described as Kodesh Kadoshim. Why? There's a whole list of questions that one has on this, on this section. But let's begin with the question of why is it here? Why is it here of all places? seems to be in the wrong place. seems to be in the wrong place. So, look at the Ramban. I don't know where to start. Let's start with the Ramban. The Ramban writes, He name is Be'ach HaKtoris Menakelem HaPnim Yemhaya Ro'ish Yaskirena Ema Shulchan HaMenorah Shumunachimahim why was it segregated out and placed here at the end of Tzitzavah? It should have been included in Trumah. Says the Ramban, you know why it comes here at the end? I'll tell you why. Because the relevance of the Mizbeach HaKetoras, its function only kicks in when the Mishkan is complete. You've constructed the Mishkan, you've constructed and begun the function of the Kalim. This was a secret that was transmitted to Moshe. The pleasant aroma produced by the Ketoras is what stops a plague. When Hashem wants to invoke his Midas Adin, when Hashem is tempted to respond with a sense of justice, to pour His wrath out at the Jewish people, what appeases Him, what calms Him, what causes Him to stand back, is the smell of the Ketoras. Says, says the Ramban, what is the reason that it's out of order here? He says it's a very simple reason. Because really the function of the Mizbeach is only relevant when the construction of the Mishkan is complete. Once the Mishkan has been dedicated, once all the other Kalim are constructed and they're put in place, now we're ready. Why? Because once Hashem is drawn down, He has Dira B'tachtonim, once you've given this dwelling place for Hashem, He's got a much closer look at the Jewish people. Understandably, symbolically, figuratively. But He's got a front row seat. He's got a bird's eye view. And with it, when Hashem dwells among us, we are much more vulnerable to Midas Hadin. We're much more vulnerable to now Hashem has a front row seat. 
once we're living under his microscope, because we're literally, physically, geographically in his dwelling place, now he operates with us with a midas adin, with his attribute of strict justice. So how will we survive? What's the response? What's the secret? The answer is Mizbeach HaKetores. Why? Why? So this is very interesting. Rabbi Zev Rudman, who's a teacher at Mechlala, he published many books on the Sasenas, elucidating the Pshat of the Sasenas. So he explained, he explained the following. Based on this Ramban, we just saw the language here in the Ramban. Why should the Mizbeach HaKetores be the antidote? Why is it the, the, the answer to Midas Hadin? Why does it appease Hashem? Well, what does Ketoros create? When you burn incense and it produces a smoke, what does it produce? A, a reach nichawach, a pleasant aroma. And somehow that pleasant aroma appeases Hashem. It's very interesting. When we talk about Midas Hadin, when we talk about God getting angry, how do we express it? Charon Af. Where is Hashem anthropomorphically? Where does Hashem express His anger, His frustration? Charon Af, the heat of the nostrils. Right? The image Lahavdil of a dragon breathing fire out of his nostrils. Where does that come from? When a person gets angry, the image is as if fire is coming out of their nostrils. The language we use to describe Hashem as angry is Charon Af. Right? When a person gets angry, they flare their nostrils. They breathe heavily out of their nostrils. What's the opposite of charon af? What do we ask for? In the Yer-Gemomidos, in the 13 attributes of Hashem, and we invoke Hashem's predisposition to be forgiving. What do we describe Hashem as? Erech apayim. What is erech apayim? Erech af is the lengthening, the expansion of the nostrils. Don't be so rigid. Don't be so angry. Don't be so strictly just. Be a little flexible. A little more kindness. That means that the anger remains within and it doesn't come out. So the ketores is the smell that counteracts the charon af. The charon af is the imagery of God gets angry where? In his nostrils. And how do we invoke his erech af, his erech apayim? How do we make his nostrils not be a place where he carries out exacts justice or vengeance against us? Through the pleasant aroma that will enter the nostrils through the reach nichoach of the, of the ketores. What's the connection still? What's the connection? What's the connection? So, how are we born? How are we born? God made Adam, took the materials, he fashioned Adam, and how did he animate Adam? He animated Adam, Vayipach ba'apav nishmas chayim. Bereshus in the second parak, he blew into Adam's nostrils the soul of life. Vayipach ba'apav. Af. Charon af. Erech af. Vayipach ba'apav. Where is the place of spirituality? Where is the place of the neshama? What communicates the neshama? It is the sense of the nostril, of the nose, the sense of smell. Of all the senses that we have, the least physical and most spiritual is the sense of smell. Now the sense of smell also results from physical stimuli, 
right? You don't smell something that's invisible. The smell is something that's physical. I once took a tour of underground Disney. It was arranged through Yeshiva University. There was a conference in Orlando, and they took us on this tour of underground Disney, which for a large sum of money, there's an executive tour where it explains the philosophy and the business strategy of, of Disney. It's fascinating. Really, really interesting. I learned a lot. One of the interesting things I learned, I learned, you probably don't know, but you know when you're walking down Main Street in Disney, you smell popcorn, you have to have it. You walk by the bakery, you smell freshly baked cookies, and you're like drawn magnetically, you're pulled in. We can't have it, but you want to have it. So that's not because there's some baker making great cookies in the back or popcorn being popped every moment, but they actually in Disney have these little machines pointed towards the street that are shooting out fragrance, aroma that entices you when you walk by, that touches your sense of smell, which immediately goes to your brain and says, I have to have it. Maybe it goes to your stomach, not your brain. And says, I have to have it. I have to have it. Sense of smell is a very powerful sense, a very powerful force. But of all the five senses that we have, it's the least physical and it's the most spiritual. Why is it the most spiritual? Because it reflects or corresponds with the neshama. The nose, the nostril, the vayipach, be'apav, nishmas chayim, that's where the neshama entered our body. It's not a coincidence that on Motzei Shabbos, when our neshama yisera, when that sense of our expanded neshama is leaving us, which is not just some hibijibi concept, some metaphysical idea, it has halachic consequences to the, to the extent that Tosos has a whole discussion. Do you get a neshama yisera on Yantif, only on Shabbos? What if it's a Shabbos that leads into Yantif? Does the neshama yisera leave? Does it stay? What is the neshama yisera? It's a whole discussion. But what do we do every single Motzei Shabbos? Because we are so saddened by the fact that the neshama yisera is leaving, we smell the basamim. If you're making Havdalah not on Motzei Shabbos, so let's say Tisha falls on Motzei Shabbos, so you don't recite Havdalah till Sunday night, by the time you recite Havdalah, you omit Pesamim. When you recite Havdalah on Motzei Yantif, you make it alakos, but you omit the Pesamim. That correlates with the opinion that there is no Jusham Yisair on Yantif. Why? Because the whole reason we're smelling Pesamim, did it ever occur to you? We're making Havdalah, which is the inverse of Kiddush. The bookends that distinguish Shabbos from the rest of the week. The cup of wine, I got. Why would we make a Bore Merah Eish? Because Saturday night is the moment that fire was created. Hashem gave a bracha to Adam, the insight to invent fire. So we express gratitude to Hashem every Motzei Shabbos by lighting a new fire, corresponding, celebrating, marking the fact that fire was first invented without fire, without energy, warmth, light, civilization would be finished. That's why we light a fire. But why do we smell basamim? We've been doing it our whole lives. Why do we smell basamim? We smell basamim because we had a neshama yisera. Shabbos, we felt something more, something new. We were a panam chadashos. Pnei Shabbos nekabla. We put on our Shabbos panam. We got rid of our vachadik panam. We put on our Shabbos panam. We felt it. In addition to the extra appetite that we have on Shabbos, physically, there's a greater spiritual appetite. Davening is longer. We do more learning. We spend more time with our family. We've disconnected from technology. We're connecting to the world. Rabbi Miller spoke so beautifully this past Shabbos about Shabbos, the secret of the Jewish renewable energy. Other civilizations have disappeared. We are still here. Why? We've never burnt out. 
Jewish people are the violation of the second law of thermodynamics of entropy. I never knew my Rebbe knew so much about physics, but of Miller described within physics and how the Jewish people, the symbol of the sneh that never burns, the ner ma'aravi and the menorah that never burnt out, the Jewish people, we, we, we extend and last far beyond our fuel. We, we violate, we supersede the rules of physics, the laws of entropy. And what is our source of energy then if it's supernatural? Shabbos is the source of renewable energy. The fact that we disconnect, connect on Shabbos and re-energize for the week is why the Jewish people are, are here to stay. So we feel that on Shabbos, that on Moshe Shabbos we're so saddened that that feeling is leaving us, it's dissipating, it's gone. And what is the means to which we comfort ourselves? It's not make Havdalah, then have some tequila. It's not make Havdalah, and then chap It's not make Havdalah, how do we comfort ourselves? Make Havdalah, go to the mall, buy yourself something new every month of Shabbos, you'll feel better. No. How do we comfort ourselves? We smell the besamim. People think that you only make a bore mine besamim or bore atse besamim. That's a bracha that's part of Havdalah. That's a bracha that's part of Birchos Hanenim. If on a Tuesday you were to smell your own besamim, you'd make a bracha beforehand. That's not a bracha that's part of Havdalah. That's a bracha like saying, bore pre'agafen is not part of Havdalah. If you have grape juice, if you have wine with dinner tonight, you make a bore pre'agafen. The same is true when you smell a fragrance that's natural, like that which would qualify for besam. You'd make that bracha any day of the week. So why did our rabbis institute dafka to make it on Motzei Shabbos to incorporate it into Havdalah? Because we're comforting ourselves from the loss of the neshama yisera. Because the neshama and the sense of smell go together. It is the most spiritual of our senses. When we create the reach nichoach, we are affirming the vayipach be'apav nishmas chayim. Hashem, you're so disappointed with us. We indulge in the pleasures of the guf. And you want to destroy us, you're angry at us, you want to exact justice against us. You want to express your midas adin, because we seem to have forfeited our soul, and we're indulging in our body. So what do we do? We bring the ketoros, the incense. Why? Because when it produces the reach nichoach that will go into Hashem's nostrils, He will experience an erech rather than a charon af. He will expand his nostrils rather than flare or have the heat, the fire of his nostrils. Why? Because through the nostrils, we're reminding Hashem, Hashem, remember when you created us? Hashem, we're invoking your nostalgia. Remember when you created us and you breathed life into us through our nostrils? We are affirming that we are still that Salam Elohim. We are affirming that we are still that Neshama within this guf. So my guf distracted me. My guft caused me to make a mistake. But please, don't, don't carry out your midas adin. Have midas arachamim. And how do I invoke you to have midas arachamim? How do I remind you that I know I'm a neshama? By reminding of you how I got my neshama to begin with, which was through the nostril, that correlates with the sense of smell. And that's why, says Rabbi Rodman, the, the nostril, the sense of smell, it's the reach nichoach produced by the ketores, which transforms Hashem from Midas Adin to Midas Harachem. The Gemara at the end of Chulun finds a number of hints of the Megillah in the Torah. The Gemara says, Mordechai mena Torah minayin. Where is there an allusion to Mordechai in the Torah? And you know what the Gemara's conclusion is? Where is there an allusion to Mordechai in the Torah? Mar Dror. Mordechai is Mar Dror. His Persian name is Mar Dror. And that corresponds with one of the ingredients of the 
of the Ketoras. There's an allusion to the Ketoras. When there was a Midas Hadin, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu, through Haman, through Achashverosh, through the Gzeira, there was a Midas Hadin, justice being executed against the Jews of Shushan, it was the Ketoras of Mordechai, the Marjror, the Neshama, that was worthy of, that was worthy of, of Midas HaRachamim, that superseded the Midas HaRachamim, that overcame the sense of Midas HaDin. If you look actually in our Ibn Ezra, he makes a very cryptic allusion to this. On Pasuk Aleph, the introduction to the Ketoras, it says, V'asisa mizbeach miktar ketoras. Make an altar, miktar ketoras. What is that miktar? It should be a mizbeach ketoras. It's an altar for incense. What is miktar ketoras? So look at the Ibn Ezra. Shem ha-mif'al. Shem ha-mif'al. What is shem ha-mif'al? It's a diktuk, a grammatical observation. Shem ha-mif'al means the name of the action. The word miktar, the Ibn Ezra loves great diktuk. So miktar, it should just say mizbeach ha-ketoras. What's the mizbeach miktar ketoras? Miktar is the name of the action. In other words, it's not enough to do the action. You have to give the action a name. The result is not all that matters, the action. It needs a name. It has a value. And what does the Ibn Ezra invoke as a parallel? What, what's a similar idea to miktar ketores? Kemo mishloach manos. Mishloach manos is like miktar ketores. What's the connection between the ketores and mishloach manos? What's one thing you have to do with the other? Is it just grammatical? Is it simply a diktuk observation? Seems like it's much more. The idea is, again, that when there's Midas Hadin, it's the Ketoras. And it was Mordechai, the Marjror, who acted like the Ketoras, who affirmed that the Jewish people have a Neshama. That we fasted three days and we daven to Hashem, we de-emphasize the body. We had been eating at the feasts of Achashverosh. We were indulging in the pleasures of the Guf. We forgot we were a Neshama. It was the Ketoras, the Mordechai, the Marjror, who reminded us we had a Neshama who produced the reach nichoch, the pleasant aroma that overcame from Hashem having a charon af to an erech af, to an erech apayim through the means of the, through the means of the ketoras. Very, very beautiful. So that's the Ramban's reason. All of this was based on the Ramban. The Ramban says, why is it that it's out of order? Why is this Mizbech stuck in here at the end of Parshas Tetzav that really belongs in Truma? The answer is, once the Mishkan is complete and the utensils are put in place, and Hashem comes down to earth. Now there's a Midas Adin. What's the antidote to Midas Adin? How do we invoke Midas Arachamim? Through Hashem's nostrils. Why his nostrils? It's a reminder of our nostrils. It's our connection. It's the soul. It's the Tzelem Elohim. It's that which we have together. When we affirm, when we produce a Reach Nechoach, that is Midas Arachamim over Midas Hadin. That's the answer of the Ramban. And the Ibn Ezra, if you want to say cryptically. The, um, the Rambam in Mor Nebuchim gives another answer. The Rambam says, you know why it's here? Because the aroma of the Ketoros is meant to displace the foul odor that would come from the Mikdash. So once the Mishkan was functional, now you were burning fats and, and, and barbecuing meat and making, sprinkling blood and it produces this some might consider it a wonderful aroma, others might consider it a horrible odor. So the Ketorah says the Rambam was purely functional. 
it masked. So it wasn't part of the avoda. The avoda was all in Parshas Truma, the Shulchan, the Mizbeach, the Aron, and so on, the Menorah. This was purely pragmatic. It was like you know you have those plugins to make it smell better. That's what the Mizbeach Hakitoris was. It was the plugin to make the Mishkan smell better. That's what the Rambam says. That's why it's not included with the Kalim that were part of the Ikar Avoda. This was just functional to make it smell better. It was added in all the way at the end. The Meshachachma doesn't like that explanation. And he says if that's the case, and it's pretty compelling, then why would we be told it's opposite the Aron, it's the meeting point of Hashem, it's Kodesh Kadashim. It's not purely functional. It has a much stronger purpose. Which begs the question again then, why is it all the way at the end? Why wasn't it included earlier on? So the Meshech has a different answer. And here the Meshech invokes the Gemara. The Gemara says, the Gemara says in uh, Zvachim, that Mizbeach Shenekar Maktirin Ketoros Bimkomo. The Gemara says that all the other Kalim, if they are destroyed, we cannot carry out the service that was done on that Kli, cannot be done in the absence of the Kli. If they're lost, if they're destroyed, if we're precluded from using them, if we don't have it, you can't perform the service. There's one exception. What's the exception? The Ketoris. Mizbeach Shenekar Maktirin Ketoris Bimkomo, that if the Mizbeach was removed, we can still offer Ketoris in the place where it normally stands. While the mitzvah of the Ketoris involves offering it on the Mizbeach, the Mizbeach is not critical to the Avodah. Even if you didn't have the Mizbeach on Ketoris, it's the exception that the Ketoris can be brought nonetheless. And that's why it's put at the end of Tetzaveh. It's unlike the other Kalim. If you lack the menorah, you can't just randomly light a candle. If you lack the Shulchan, you can't just randomly bring the Lechem upon him. If you lack the Mizbeach, you can't randomly bring the Ola Shlomim and so on. But if you lack the Mizbeach on Ketoris, you can still bring a Ketoris. And that's why it's included here all the way at the end. The Meshachachma doesn't say this exactly, but I saw some people understand the Meshachachma this way. Why should the Ketoris be unique? Why should it have a lasting power even beyond the Karbonos? That when the Karbonos are gone, the Ketoris can still be brought. What's different about the Ketoris? The Ketoris had the ingredients of the Ketoris included not only things that smelled pleasant, but it had a very toxic ingredient as well. And we're told that you can't bring the Ketoris unless all the ingredients are represented. It's invalid unless they're all there. Why? Because even the putrid, odorous Jew is also part of Klal Yisrael. If the Ketoris represents the full diversity and range of Jews, then even the negative, toxic-smelling, odorous Jew is included within the Ketoris. The Ketoris is the avodah that represents the unity of Klal Yisrael. It's the totality of the Jewish people. It's that bris avos we spoke about. Even the Jew neglecting bris sinai is part of the bris avos, is included in the Ketoris. And if you see the Ketoris as representing Klal Yisrael, the unity of Klal Yisrael, we can understand why it has a lasting power even beyond Karbonos. That when the Mishkan, when the Beis HaMikdash are destroyed, and we can't achieve Kapara through the Karbonos, we still have this notion of the unity, of the entity, of the connection of the Jewish people. Maybe that's why the Ketoris also has a very powerful place within, within the Jewish practice until today. The Medrash, the notion that the Ketoris is the antidote, it's the Midas HaRacham over the Midas HaDin. And why? Because it represents Kla Yisrael Ba'achtos. Every segment, every type of Jew, the virtuous and the non-virtuous are all part of it. 
The Zohar in Parshas Vayechi says that if there's something negative, if the Jewish people are struck by a magefa, like the Ramban wrote, then the Jewish community should get together and do what? Recite Pitamak Torahs. And if you incite the Pitamak Torahs with intensity, it stops the plague. Why? So, again, if you apply everything that we've just said, Kaddish Baruch Hu Midas Adin is Charon Af. How do you achieve Erech Apayim? Through the Reach Nichoach produced by the Ketoros. Why should that produce a Reach Nichoach? We are asserting, we're validating, we're affirming, we know that we're neshama within the growth. We know who we are and we're offspring of you. So even when we lack the Mizbech HaKetoros, and even when we know functionally bring the Ketoros, the Zohar brings down this notion that when we recite the Ketoros, the Kolbo notes, say Pitam HaKetoros, is a, is a school of Ashiras. How many of you have a leather-bound cloth Pitam HaKetoros that you say every morning? It's complicated. The first one who quotes this practice is the Sefer Seder HaYom. It's quoted by the Chavaz Yar. It's quoted by the Kafachayim, um, that it's a school to say Pitta Maktoros from a cloth. Just so you know, it's not so partial. Rav Avadja was very against it. Yibadol Chaim Tovim Varuchim Rav Shechter is against it because it's a violation of a number of halachas. We have a halacha that you're not allowed to write psukim on parchment as if it's the Torah when it's only part of the Torah. We have a halacha that you're not allowed to use the same letters, Sabashuas, that we write a Sefer Torah with, not for a Sefer Torah. There are several halachas that this minhag, though it is quoted by the Kafachayim and others, in many ways, uh, in some ways, seems to be a violation of uh, halacha. So there were, Rav Avadir of Shechter is against this practice, against the practice of saying it from a cloth. But one should still, there are several makoros, the idea of saying it. In fact, in line with this, the Nod of Yehuda writes in his chuvas. In Arachayim, that the reason we say Enkelokenu before we say Pitamak Torahs, in Eretz Yisrael they say it every day, Sfarim say it every day, Nusuf Sfarim says it every day, Ashkenazim, we only have the patience to say it on Shabbos, we're running out. But why do we introduce Pitamak Torahs with Enkelokenu? Have you thought about what the words Enkelokenu mean? Enkelokenu, Enkelokenu, it's an amazing, who's like Hashem? This is theology, this is... Belief in Hashem 101. Why are we saying that before we're talking about Pitamak Torahs? So the Nudu says, because, and we don't say it before, in the morning we say the Parsha Satamid, the Kiyor, we say all these Korbanos in the morning, and we don't say Enkel Okeinu first. Why Dafka before Pitamak Torahs? Says the Nudu Yehuda, because since Pitamak Torahs is a school of Rashiras, it brings wealth, before we say it and achieve our wealth, we remind ourselves who is the source of wealth. And then we say Pitamak Torahs and receiving Hashem's Midas HaRachamim we're able to get all the bracha. I'll just say, because it drives me a little crazy, you can't talk all davening, come late, have the so shortish monastery on the planet, but you said Pitamak Torahs from a cloth before you left early, so now, oh, it's a school that you're going to become wealthy. We, we have a better school, it's called Shimon Esrei. It's called Davin Bekavana, Davin without talking, come on time to shul. So sometimes we like to use these shortcuts to take, we employ these schoolers at the expense of forfeiting what, what really is, is the basic. But this is a little bit about the, the Ketoras and what it's all about. Have a great day.